What a, what a wonderful thing it is to be gathered together this morning to worship our Lord and Savior. Amen. Our text for this morning is found in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Here's what it says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For certain men came from James, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, separated himself fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You may be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? And to whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we come now to your holy scriptures, seeking these words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see, Father, ears to hear, a mind to understand, a heart to believe, and your spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel today, Father, we pray in the name of your Son, our King. Amen. Well, we're continuing this morning in our study of Galatians, and if if you're new here, uh, one of the way that we do things is, is each of our preaching pastors kind of has their own series, their own book that they're working their way through. So if, if you come and Pastor Rudolph is preaching, which is a majority of the time, he's working his way through James right now. I've been working my way through Galatians. Josh has been working his way through 1 John. So just it, that's the lay of the land on a normal Sunday morning here, just so you know. So we are in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. And, and to start off, I want you to fill in this blank for me. Fill in this blank in your mind. One of the things a Christian must do is blank the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things a Christian must do is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's, there's a lot of different answers that might fit into that blank, but I'm guessing the first thing that probably came to your mind was maybe share or proclaim. As a Christian, you must share the gospel. Christ has commanded you to. Okay, so that is, that is a right answer. It's one of the things that we emphasize in our church, evangelism, sharing the gospel with the lost, proclaiming the gospel. It's one of the things that we are known for as Southern Baptists is evangelism, missions, and it's because Christ has commanded us to do this. But there are other commands in Scripture, 
in regards to things that we should do with the gospel that we have often neglected or, or laid aside or at least not emphasized maybe as much as we should have. What else must we do with the gospel besides share it? Well, brothers and sisters, we must share the gospel, but we also must guard the gospel. Guard it. We must contend for its truth and its purity. We must fight for the truth of the gospel according to God's word. Paul says this in 2 Timothy. He says this to Timothy. His parting words to Timothy. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is that good deposit? It is the gospel that Paul has entrusted to Timothy that Jesus Christ had entrusted to him. Timothy is to guard it. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Jude, writing in chapter, well, the only chapter in Jude, verse 3, says something very similar. Listen to what he says. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. What does Jude want them to do? To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To fight for the faith, the gospel that had been handed down. You see, the good news of the gospel of Christ is something that must be shared, it must be proclaimed, but it is also something that must be guarded and contended for. Why? Because the enemies of the church, and there are many, are always trying to distort the true gospel. This is, this is why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. This is the issue. They had received a false, distorted gospel from false teachers They had accepted a gospel that included circumcision as part of what it takes to be saved. A gospel that that required faith in Jesus and becoming Jewish for salvation. Rather than rejecting this, rather than guarding the truth of the gospel that Paul had entrusted to them, rather than contending for the faith that Paul had handed down to them, they had accepted and received this distortion, this false gospel. They had compromised. This this compromise was so serious that Paul writes this in the first chapter of Galatians, verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, there are many ways to fail in guarding the gospel. One way is to fail as the Galatians did, it's to accept and believe false teaching. Heresy, a a false gospel. Okay, this is what they did. Now, now this is a real danger. There are still, in this day, many organizations peddling false gospels that do not save because they are distortions of the true gospel. They are, as Paul says, not really any gospel at all. 
Gospels of, of works and obedience and earning. You should reject them. And to use Paul's language from 2 Corinthians, you should destroy their arguments with the truth of the Holy Scriptures. So, so that's one way to fail in guarding the gospel. But there's another way to fail at guarding the gospel. A much less obvious way, a, a more subtle way. And I think for many of us, a, a more dangerous way. And that's through hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. To believe the right things about the gospel in your head and in your heart, but to live in such a way that it contradicts what you believe. To believe the right things, but to fail to live in a way that is consistent with what you know to be true. And that's what we see in this morning's text. It's a time when Paul had to guard the gospel, not from a false teacher, but from hypocrisy. He had to guard the gospel, not from an enemy of the church, but from Peter, one of the 12 apostles himself, because Peter had stumbled into hypocrisy. So here's how we're going to break down this morning's sermon. First, we're going to look at the text, kind of get our minds around it, understand what's going on, and then we'll look at some some ways, some things we can learn from it. So so let's look at the text. Now, before we get into the details, we, we need to remember what Paul is doing here in Galatians, because this paragraph, 11 through 14, is crucial to the entire argument and organization of the book. So again, the, the, the church in Galatia had received false teachers. Paul was the one who planted the church. Paul and Barnabas had planted this church in Galatia. But after they had left, false teachers had come in and they had sold the Galatians a false gospel of circumcision. You heard the same thing in Acts chapter 15. They were saying, yes, believe in Jesus, but also to be saved, you must have circumcision and you must obey the Mosaic law. They're sliding into apostasy by receiving this false gospel. And so Paul writes the letter to the Galatians to bring them back from the edge. And to do this, Paul's letter has two main sections, kind of two main arguments that he makes, the big headings in the book. First... He has to defend his own apostleship and the gospel that he preached to them. And this makes sense because the false teachers, they had come into Galatia and they had said, you know that gospel that Paul preached to you? That's actually a false gospel. So Paul had to defend where he got his gospel from. That's what we saw in chapters 1 and chapters 2. That's Paul's point. And we see his kind of main thesis here for this section in verse 11 and 12. He says, For I would have you know, brothers that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel or not from a man. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul's telling them, look, I didn't get my gospel from anyone. I got it directly from Jesus Christ himself. I didn't learn it from Peter. I didn't learn it from James. I didn't learn it from John. I didn't learn it in Jerusalem. I learned it from Christ himself, so it is trustworthy. That is his argument kind of in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Anything else then is a counterfeit gospel. So that's his first section, his first argument. He's defending himself against attacks from these false teachers. But then in the second section, which is basically the rest of the letter starting in chapter 2 verse 15, Paul launches into the attack mode. 
It's a doctrinal theological argument against what the false teachers were actually saying, the doctrine they were selling to these Galatians. He dismantles their false theology, their false understanding of the law, and their false understanding of the gospel. Now, this section, 11 through 14, is crucial because it's kind of the bridge between these two sections. Paul's a brilliant writer, and so what he does in this section is tell a story that really accomplishes both of those things. Because it's a story about a time that he had to rebuke Peter. So if Paul can rebuke Peter with the truth of the gospel, that means that he's not under Peter's authority. They're both under the authority of the word. And at the same time, this story that he tells raises the main issue of the letter to the Galatians, the main theological issue, which is justification by faith alone. In other words... The role of the law in a Christian's life. Does someone have to become Jewish and obedient to the Old Testament law to become a Christian? Is salvation by faith alone or is it by faith in Jesus plus obedience? This text addresses both of those things. So let's dig into it this morning. Look at verse 11. And it's, it's a story. It's a short story. And with most short stories, Paul leaves out a lot of details that we might want to know, but that's okay because he has a point. So in verse 11, he gives us kind of the summary of what happens here. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, this is quite a jarring sentence in the context of Galatians. That, that word right at the beginning of the sentence, but, just stands out, and it it tells us that it's connected to what came before. Paul had just been talking about in verses, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, he'd been telling the story about the couple different times he had met Peter, he'd met James in Jerusalem, and he was telling the story of how he shared with them the gospel that he was preaching, they shared with him the gospel they were preaching, and it's the same gospel. They're all on the same team. Paul had brought Titus to Jerusalem, and they said, no, he doesn't need to be circumcised. Everything is good. Everyone's on the same page. We're all happy. Things are great. Paul and Peter are best buddies. They endorsed each other. They supported each other's ministry. They're all on the same team. Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, not by outward obedience to the Mosaic law. Paul says, that's what happened when I was in Jerusalem. Then Paul went back to Antioch. Him and Barnabas are hanging out in the church Cephas, which is just another name for Peter, came to Antioch, and something happened, we'll find out in later verses, where Paul had to oppose Peter, the apostle himself, to his face because he stood condemned. This Peter, who they were just all on the same team, now Paul had to oppose him to his face. What in the world happened that provoked this type of response from Paul? What could Peter have done that condemned him so that Paul had to oppose him in front of everyone? Well, he shares that starting in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, that is Jerusalem, Antioch is in Syria, modern day Syria, by the way. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. And separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So there's, there is the event that happens. The church at Antioch 
just to give you a little bit of understanding of kind of what's going on. Timeline. The church of Antioch is planted in Acts chapter 11. Okay, the Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts 15, that happens years later. So this is before that event. So Peter's visit happened sometime between those two. Paul and Barnabas, they had planted the church. They were ministering in the church at Antioch together. And the church at Antioch is unique because it's one of the very first churches, actually the very first church, where Jew and Gentile were together in the same church. Okay, so this is, this is kind of the cutting edge of Christianity at this point. It's the very first church that has this beautiful display of gospel unity between these two, in the culture, di- diametrically opposed groups, Jew and Gentile. Everything is great. The gospel is on display. They're one unified church. Until Peter comes. Peter shows up from Jerusalem to visit, and does he join in this unity? Yes, at first he does. He sits right down next to his Gentile Christians and chows down. Not just once, but based on the, the language here and the way the verbs, the tense of the verbs, this was Peter's regular practice. He had no problem eating alongside the Gentiles until the men from James came. These other Jews from Jerusalem came to Antioch, and all of a sudden, Peter changes his behavior. He withdraws himself. He no longer would share table fellowship with Gentiles. He would no longer fellowship with them. He withdraws. He separates himself from the Gentile believers out of fear. And was he alone in this? No. See, Peter, again, was an apostle. Peter was a leader, not just of any church, but of the entire church. He's one of the apostles So his hypocritical actions lead to all of the Jews separating themselves in Antioch. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. All of the Jewish Christians separated themselves from the Gentile Christians in the Antioch church. Even faithful Barnabas was led astray and into error, even Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is is known all throughout the book of Acts as a godly man. The book of Acts says this about him, that he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He's known as the son of encouragement. But even Barnabas couldn't withstand this peer pressure. Even Barnabas is led astray and into hypocrisy. He sees Peter and the other Jews separating themselves, and Barnabas, a Jew as well, follows suit, follows them right into hypocrisy, follows them, as we'll see later, into conduct that is not in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, to understand the nature of what is going on here and why this is such a big deal, why Jews would separate themselves, you have to understand a little something of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. To a a Jewish mind in the first century, there are only two people groups that exist on earth, Jews and Gentiles. What's a Gentile? Anyone who's not Jewish. That was how they viewed the world. Jews are those who are obedient to Torah, to the law of Moses, to circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, dietary laws, the 
all the Old Testament stuff and a bunch of other stuff that they had added on over the time. And in the eyes of a Jew, this is what marked them off, especially Sabbath keeping, circumcision, and the dietary laws, how they ate, what they ate, and who they ate with. In some of the first century writings of the Jews, you can even see things like a Jew who ceases to obey the dietary laws, a Jew who eats with Gentiles, ceases to be a, to be a Jew. They've denied their Jewishness. This is why this is such a serious issue. This is why when some Jews started separating themselves, it, it added all this immense pressure on the other ones. The Gentiles were sinners in their mindset. And they were righteous. Why? Because they were the people of God. They followed God's laws. Jews and Gentiles, needless to say, did not get along well in the first century. They generally both hated each other. A faithful Jew in those days would not eat with Gentiles, and they would not even go into a Gentile's house. So they were never in the same room together. Think, think about it this way. And this is, this, is, this is pretty striking when you realize this. At the end of Matthew 28, Jesus gives the 12 apostles, which includes Peter, our guy here in this text, the Great Commission, right? Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, which nations here is the same word that's translated Gentiles. Go and make disciples of all the Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Very clear. Jesus told Peter and the other 12 apostles, go make disciples of the Gentiles. It's not until Acts chapter 10, so that's Matthew 28. It's not until Acts chapter 10 that Peter even talks to a Gentile. Okay, so probably at least 10 or more years from the time that Jesus gives that command, and really no one, at least in the book of Acts, is sharing the gospel with Gentiles. We've got Philip, and there's some little glimmers, but the apostles in Jerusalem are not sharing the gospel with Gentiles. They're still not going into their houses. They're not eating with them. They're not doing any of this. No one has broken through that barrier because the cultural tension is so strong. Many of the Jews interpreted Jesus' words as, make the Gentiles Jewish, and that's not what he was saying. To get Peter to share the gospel with the Gentiles, in Acts chapter 10, and you can read it later, God has to send a vision to Peter and tell him, take up and eat, and Peter says, I can't do that, those are unclean things, and God's basically like, Peter, stop it. Don't call things unclean, which I'm saying are clean. And he sends him to Cornelius. And again, at first, Peter's like, I've never been in a Gentile's house. I'm not supposed to do this. All that to say, this, this new gospel idea of Jews and Gentiles in one church is radical. It's brand new. Extremely difficult for the Jews to understand. Everything they had been taught about Jews and Gentiles had to be jettisoned. But Peter understood this. That's the thing that's so crazy about this event in Galatians. Peter understands this. Peter knew that the gospel has broken down these barriers between the Jews and the Gentiles. Peter knew because Jesus had told him. Peter knew because he had received this vision from God that we saw in Acts chapter 10. The, the church in Antioch doesn't even come into existence until Acts chapter 11. Peter's had his vision. 
Peter has shared the gospel with Cornelius, a Gentile. He's seen the Holy Spirit come on the Gentiles. He knows better. And we know that he knows better because when he comes to Antioch, he's eating right alongside the Jews. Again, breaking all of the Jewish customs. Peter was rightfully denying his Jewishness and accepting his new identity as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, until the men from James came. Peter draws back and reverts to his old Jewish ways, thereby implying that the Gentiles are not worthy of salvation. Why? Well, again, verse 12, fear, out of fear of the circumcision party. Now, that doesn't tell us much. And Paul doesn't give us much information, again, because the details aren't really the point he's driving at. We don't know who the circumcision party is. We don't know exactly what Peter was afraid of. There's, there's lots of different theories, and we're not going to go into it because it, it really doesn't matter to Paul's point. The point is, whatever Peter is afraid of, it was an ungodly fear of man and not a desire to be faithful to the gospel. Peter allowed his fear of of man, of people's opinions, of external circumstances to lead him into gospel-denying, hypocritical action. I think here we see Peter's old habits rear their ugly head. The, The same Peter who has boldly preached the gospel and suffered for Christ already so many times, turns out there's still a piece of him that is that same Peter who denied Christ three times on the night of his death. And really, it's the same thing. Why did he deny Christ? Fear for his own safety, fear of man. Why does Peter become a hypocrite here? Fear, fear of man. Fear of what people would think, fear of what people would do. Fear maybe of losing his influence, fear of losing his position. And so he acts as a hypocrite. He's not ignorant. Peter knows that what he is doing is wrong. That's the meaning of the word hypocrite. He's he's not mistaken. He didn't make a little boo-boo. He's not confused about what the gospel is. He knows the truth. He knows that the Gentiles and Jews are a part now of one church and there should be no divisions between them. He knows that in God's eyes, the Gentiles are just as saved, even in their uncircumcised state, as the Jews are. And yet, by his actions, he denies the truth that he knows. He's condemned. So he stands condemned. And here's here's the chilling thing to me. His own words condemn him. In in Acts chapter 10, again, this is an event that takes place before the one we're looking at this morning. This is what he says to Cornelius, a Gentile. And he said to them, this is Peter speaking, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Okay? So he's telling the Gentiles, look, everyone knows it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with Or visit anyone from another nation, any Gentile. It's unlawful. Not according to Scripture, but according to their traditions, okay? He says, everyone knows that. Then listen to what he says. It just sends chills down my spine. But God has shown me 
that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. He says, God has revealed to me that that was not right anymore. And that's exactly what he's doing in Galatians. He's betraying the very words that he knows came from God himself. Acts chapter 10, 34, he continues, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Just send chills down my spine. You've probably done things like this before. I know I have. Were you condemned by your own words? That, that feeling when you're saying something or, or you're doing something that you know goes against what's true, but you're scared, scared of what people might think, scared of, of what people might do, and so you betray your convictions. Peter's actions in Antioch directly contradicts the truths that he knows and believes about the gospel. Truths he, that were revealed to him directly by God. And so in his hypocrisy, he leads all of the believing Jews into sin and destroys the unity of the church in Antioch. I mean, you realize, think about this. If a Jew can't associate with a Gentile in the church, I mean, you realize what that means? This isn't just about eating. This is about fellowship. This is the Jews in the church saying, we cannot fellowship with you because you are Gentiles. This means that they would have to say as well, we cannot even participate in the Lord's Supper with you because you are Gentile sinners. Do you see the wedge this is driving in the church? The church that Christ is bringing together? This is is literally a church-destroying issue. It's a dark day in the history of the church. But there's hope because the Apostle Paul is there and he's not having any of it. And, and Paul comes in, and, and he doesn't say this, but I'm guessing that he was, he was gone away for a time while this started to happen, and he comes back. Because of the way he says, but when I saw, so somehow he wasn't seeing it happen. I think he was probably gone, and he comes back. He comes galloping in like Gandalf at Helm's Deep, okay? Listen to what he says in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul sees this with crystal clarity. He says, I know exactly what's going on here. I said to Cephas, that's Peter, before them all, so in the presence of everyone, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul says in front of all the other Jews, in front of the men from James, Peter, you live like a Gentile. He's just calling him out on his hypocrisy. You lived like a Gentile before, and now you're going to ask the Gentiles to live like a Jew? He's calling out his double-mindedness. Now, just imagine that scene, right? Paul's out of town. It's dinner time. Maybe it's a Sunday morning at First Baptist Church of Antioch. Maybe Maybe they're about to partake in the Lord's Supper, and they've got two tables set up. I don't know. The division is clear. All of the Jewish believers are separated They've separated themselves out of their self-righteousness and in their hypocrisy. They won't share in the food. They won't share in fellowship. They've made a distinction. There's the Jewish people and then there's the sinners. No food, no fellowship. 
Paul returns. He takes stock of what's going on, enters the room, stands up, looks straight at Peter, and just calls him out in front of everyone. I mean, the tension in that room must have been palpable. It, it's, it's, a, it's an absolute kill shot delivered by Paul, not, not in malice, not in, in anger, but with a passionate heart for the purity of the gospel and the unity of the church and the mission of Christ himself. This was not a time for, for patience or gentleness or quiet confrontation, but a time for Paul to call him out in front of everyone. Peter had chosen to deny the truth of the gospel by his actions and fracture the unity of the church. And so Paul, realizing the gravity of the situations, responds publicly, quickly, and devastatingly. And this last sentence by Paul really reveals the, the crux of the issue, the central question at play in this episode. It's actually about much more than the Jew-Gentile relationship in the church. That's kind of the symptom. But the real question underneath all of that is, how does someone become a follower of Jesus? What, what is necessary? Is it by grace through faith in Jesus, or is it by grace through faith and obedience to the Jewish laws? Those two things, if you answer that question differently, those are two different gospels. One's true, one's false. In other words, does someone have to become Jewish to be saved? That's the issue. Peter's actions separating the Jews, separating themselves, are implying to all of the Gentiles that even though their faith is in Jesus, they're still dead in their sins. Why? Well, because they're not Jewish. They need to obey the law if they want to be right with God. Peter's actions here, they're not just denying the truth of, of justification by faith, but they're also ruining and going against the very mission and work of Jesus Christ. The whole point of his coming, his death and resurrection, the whole point of Jesus his mission to earth, his, his ascension, and what the church is now supposed to do is to gather for himself one unified group of people, made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jews and Gentiles, together. Peter knows this, and yet he acts differently. Peter was preaching the right gospel and living now as if the gospel was a gospel of works righteousness. But the true gospel unites. Peter was dividing. He was living in a way that separated the very people the gospel had united in Christ. And as Paul says, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul rightfully rebukes him in front of everyone. And by that action, saves not only the church in Antioch, but the church for all time. This issue we saw in Acts 15 was an issue that plagued the early church. We're seeing it in Galatians, and as you read the letters of the New Testament, you'll see it come up again and again. If the church had failed and had chosen a false gospel, now in God's sovereignty that wasn't going to happen, but Paul living in the moment knows that if the church fails and adds Jewishness to what it takes to be saved, the gospel is lost, the work of Christ is destroyed. And so he fights for it. That's what Galatians is about. And that's why he includes 
this story. In grasping that, understanding kind of what's going on in this text, then what, what can we learn? What can we see from this text? There's a lot, but I want to just mention a few things that we see here with crystal clarity. Number one, church unity is a gospel issue. Church unity is a gospel issue. If the church, if a church is not unified, if if our church is not unified, then our conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. If our fellowship is fractured, the gospel is perverted. Yes, we must be ever vigilant and watchful against doctrinal error. We have to be. But we also must be vigilant against hypocrisy within our own ranks, for ourselves and for others as well. We must keep a close watch on our lives so that we as individuals and corporately as well are living in step with the truth of the gospel that we are preaching. What does this mean? It means there must be no divisions within our church, no factions. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and there are no second-class citizens in Del Cerro Baptist Church. We are not to treat anyone differently within the body due to race or gender or income level or past sins or struggles with current sins. If someone is saved, they are saved. There's only one, one rank in the body of Christ, and that's Christian. We're not to treat anyone differently, even if they hold some office in the church. A pastor is no more righteous than any regular Christian. A deacon is no more justified in Christ than anyone else. Paul makes this so clear in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We may all be unique, Some of us more unique than others. But we are all one, united in Jesus Christ by faith. So what does this look like in the body life of the church? It means we must be quick to reconcile with each other, quick to forgive, slow to be angry with each other, treating each other with as much grace as Christ has shown us, which is a lot. Amen? Brothers and sisters, when, our, when the unity of our church is on display to the world, the gospel is on display. It's made visible to people. It was in Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. Think about that. Why? Because in Antioch, the world, for the first time in all of history, saw a group of Gentiles and Jews meeting together, eating together, and fellowshipping together, and worshiping together. And they were like, what in the world is this? They're not Jewish, and they're not not Jewish, and so they're following this guy named Jesus Christ. We'll call them Christians. Their unity was so inexplainable to the world that they had to come up with a new word for it. May the world look at the unity that we have in our church, and may it make no sense outside of the unifying power of the gospel. Think about that. Next time that you 
have an issue with a member of the church, next time that we have a members meeting, next time that we say our church covenant together, we are displaying the gospel to each other and to the world. Church unity is a gospel issue. Number two, hypocrisy is a real danger to you and to me and to the church. We are all in danger of it. If Peter, the apostle, one who had walked with Jesus, one who had seen with his eyes the resurrected Christ, the transfigured Christ, one who had seen Jesus ascend into heaven, if he can fall into hypocrisy, so can we. It's a constant threat. You will be asked at some point or another, maybe you have already in your life, you will be asked or pressured to compromise the truth of the gospel in some way. It most likely won't be over the issue of Jews and Gentiles in the church, but there are many, many endless amounts of ways to be a hypocrite and to to compromise the gospel. Here's just some some thoughts I came up with. Maybe Maybe it's a relative. They're, they're Mormon. They're Jehovah's Witness. They're, they're a part of some group like this. They ask you, don't you think I'm a Christian? Don't you think I'm going to heaven? Now, you know, again, here's where it comes in. You know the right answers. You know that their church teaches heresy. You know that they teach a false gospel. And if you're confused about that, I'd love to talk with you about that. You know that they have a false Jesus that cannot save. What do you do? Well, you have two options. Do you act consistently with the truth of the gospel, tell them the truth? Or do you act hypocritically? Tell them they're fine and just act as if they're a Christian just like you, even though you know that's wrong because that's a lot easier. Fear of man, if, if you look to men's opinions for your hope, you will tend towards hypocrisy. If your eyes are on Christ, your step will be consistent with the gospel. Maybe it's, it's the issue of homosexuality. Coworker, a family member, They say they're a Christian. You know that the Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality is a sin. What do you do? They ask, don't you think I'm a Christian? What do you do? Do you you affirm their faith? Go towards hypocrisy? Do you just ignore the issue? Or do you share the truth with them in love, in compassion, knowing that they are living in sin, enslaved to sin, and wanting for them the freedom that only Christ can bring? If your eyes are on Christ, you will go the right way. If your eyes are on what people think and man's opinions and external circumstances, you'll be tempted towards hypocrisy. Or maybe it's just someone in the church, someone who rubs you in the wrong way. Totally theoretical, could never happen, I'm sure. They come from a different background. They were raised differently than you. They, they do things you don't like. They say things you don't like. They're, they're messy. You can't really classify any of it as sin according to the scriptures, but you just don't like it. You have a choice. How will you treat them? What will you do? Will you, like Peter, withdraw yourself from them, create distance between yourself and them? It's hypocrisy. Or will you look to Christ Empty yourself of your self-righteousness and embrace them as a brother and sister, displaying to everyone else the unifying power of the gospel. 
It doesn't display the power of the gospel if our unity is just based around affinity groups and things that we like because people from the world look at that and say, yeah, that makes sense, right? It displays the unity and the power of the gospel when relationships and unity that doesn't make sense outside of Jesus are on display. There's a, a, a strange sense in which we should be able to say, you know, I think Outside of the gospel and outside of the church, I don't know if we would have ever been friends, right? We must reject this type of hypocrisy. It's a very real danger to the gospel and to the church. Now, how do we do that? How do we set ourselves on a gospel foundation? How do, what glasses do we need to view the world so that we are protected against this hypocrisy? And it all comes down to this, the last one. It all comes down to this, justification by faith alone. This is the heart of the issue in Antioch, it's the heart of the issue in the Galatian church, and it's where Paul's going to go next in Galatians and pretty much spend the rest of the time there. It all comes down to this. Anyone who has the salvation that Jesus offers by faith, anyone who is truly a believer in Jesus Christ, has come to it by grace alone, through faith alone. Not by obedience, no one has earned it. No one is better than anyone else. No one was less guilty before they were saved. No one inherited it from their parents. No one earned salvation living to, by Old Testament laws. No one is more righteous in Christ than anyone else. All who are in Christ are righteous only because we possess the righteousness that Christ has given to us. And if you can see other people through that lens, you will have no reason to deny any Christian fellowship or love or forgiveness or any of the things that we are to give each other. I mean, do, do, do you realize that? We are all equally righteous in Christ. There is none of us that are more righteous. You, you will never be more righteous in God's eyes than you are right now. You will never be more loved by God than you are right now. Your salvation will never be more secure and certain than it is right now. You will never be more saved than you are right now. Why? This is the issue. Because, brother, sister, you are united to Christ by faith, one with him. Not in some abstract theological concept, but in reality. And because you are in him, we are equal. Because you, we, you are in him, I am in him, we are all one in Christ. That is a reality. All we have to do is understand that and live in light of that truth. That is the secret. That is the foundation of a unified, God-glorifying church. Because it is the glory in the heart of the gospel. These are the truths we must live by. This is the truth of the gospel to which we must conform our lives and our church. Now, if our eyes and heart are constantly looking outside to people's opinions, to what people are thinking, worried about the culture's approval, worried about what our friends might say, worried about anything external, we will inevitably fall into gospel-denying hypocrisy. And if we do that, our church will be a law-based, record-keeping, grudge-holding, graceless fellowship, which in reality is no fellowship at all and no church at all. 
because it displays no gospel at all. But if our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ, his cross, and his resurrection, and the salvation that we have in him by grace through faith, we will live consistently. If we look to Christ for approval, we will live consistently. If the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone is constantly before our eyes and and is the glasses through which we see each other, the gospel will thrive in our church and our unity will display the gospel and it will make no sense to others outside of the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, let us, by the grace of God, fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and our salvation in him, amen? Let us walk as those who have been justified, made righteous in Christ. Let us be unified in and around this. And by doing so, we will guard the gospel. We will display the truth of the gospel to the world. And even, Paul says in Ephesians, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Amen. Let's pray.